Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hi, everyone. This September, I'll be hosting my first ever Art of Loving Men's Retreat. During this men's retreat, I'll be teaching you how you can create more sexual self-confidence, trustworthiness, and a more passionate sexual relationship. We have only a limited number of tickets left, so be sure to click the link in the show notes to purchase your ticket today. Hope to see you there. Today's episode is the audio recording from a Facebook Live on the topic of men's sexuality. If you would like to join Dr. Finlayson Fife's free Facebook group so that you can participate in future live conversations, you can find the link in the show notes below. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to um, this session. We're going to talk about uh, understanding men's sexuality and obviously there's a lot more to be said on this topic and um, I, I think a topic that's actually been kind of under addressed actually in our LDS group um, more we talk about it in negative terms like you know pornography and how men are the problem um, <laughs> I actually just should say I've been I'm working on a book and I finished writing the men's chapter a, a few weeks ago and just doing a lot more reading from that frame. And I have to say, I, I kind of feel for the men sometimes because there's a lot of, um, you guys might have the power more than women do, but don't screw it up and you're making women cry. And <laughs> you know, there, there's a more of this assumption of men having power but then a lot of, of pressure to not do harm. And so the, just reading it more from the frame of, you know, I heard it all obviously growing up as a female and sort of these invalidating, excuse me, invalidating messages around uh, women's sexuality, women being sexual beings and so on. But um, looking at it more from a men's lens, I... Uh, it made me feel some real compassion for what the messages men get. So they may supposedly be the ones who have the priesthood, have the, the agency, and, you know, arguably that is the messaging that they receive, but they're responsible for a lot more. And there's a lot of fear that while they may well be legitimately sexual beings, they're going to harm with it, or there's the risk of harming it. So, you know, just one of the uh, quotes, um, was that you know God counts women's tears, um, and th that is if you men are causing your wives to cry, God's counting. Now, I don't know if He's counting men's tears. <laughs> what about how women can make men cry or make men devastate men's happiness as well? So you know, in a lot of ways, women get a pass that we should be taken care of, but we don't have as much responsibility in caring and loving and um, being full partners. And so this imbalance, this asymmetry, we've come by it honestly, um, but it really does mess up a lot of our thinking around how to be married, how to be partners. I'm sorry, I'm working with this desk. I'm gonna have a real office here soon, <laughs> but um, in the meantime, I'm always sitting on a bed. Uh, so, um, so I think there is, um, this asymmetry interferes with the ability to love and be loved, to desire and be desired. There's pain on both sides of it. And so um, I wanna think a little bit today more about men's sexuality. And I wanna start with, oh my gosh, there's so much to say. Um, I guess I just wanna start with how, what a good thing masculinity is and what a good thing men's sexuality is. Um, is anybody having trouble hearing me? I don't think so. Somebody maybe can't hear. Um, so um, I want to talk about the good um, in men's sexuality for starters. So I think that one of the, you know, first of all, while I'm almost allergic to um, prescriptive conversations about who men should be and how women should be, right? I, I don't like it when we start telling people who they should be um, in any narrow way. 
Um, on the other hand, I think there are real differences in masculine energy and feminine energy or yin and yang, right? And uh, Taoism understands this. A lot of Eastern philosophies understand these different energetic differences that are equal and necessary. And they're a part of every human being. We all have masculine and feminine energy. We all have yin and yang energies. And a lot of times in sexuality and relationships and um, desire dynamics, one inhibits more of a masculine energy, sorry, one um, exhibits or um, exudes a kind of masculine energy and the other may a more feminine energy. And this is not like, oh, everybody's masculine. You know, you only do these things. Women only do these things. I, you know, there's ways in which my husband is more yin in his energy and I'm more yang and other areas where I'm more yin and he's more yang. So this is not like some narrowly defined reality, but often in, you know, what a lot, a lot of times we will be a real blend in the day-to-day of life. We may be very yang when we're at work or we're running a household, uh, but more yin sexually, like we want to be more receptive. We like being desired. Um, And so just speaking to, so just um, what I think, I'll just bear my own testimony, (laughs) testimony, of masculine energy. I mean, that, that there is such goodness in that kind of desire and appreciation of the feminine. You know, I got my hair done yesterday. I walk in and my husband, the way he looks at me is this like appreciation of the feminine, feminine beauty, right? Like a kind of draw to it, a recognition of it, um, a valuing of it. That is so much a part of the good life, so much a part of, of, of that excitement and spark that exists within a couple. And so, um, and so, you know, men that embody that masculine energy sexually, right? Not all men do, about 20% prefer more the feminine energy or more neutral. But, you know, that sort of pursuing, desiring, ability to love through the body, that goal-directed behavior, I like you, I want you, um, is really, can be really wonderful. And because men are often not uh, taught to be anxious, well, let me say it a little differently than that. Um, I think women can have a harder relationship to their bodies in part because of an internal and external pressure to be beautiful, to be attractive and so on. But men are often more able to love through their bodies. And I mean truly love. Now, a lot of us have put this in the frame of being selfish, self-serving. They just want me for the sex. They don't care about me. And sometimes this is true. I'm not here to say like all men are good, um, nor that all women are good. Okay, sex isn't always good, nor is it, and it's, it's amoral sexuality. It's how you relate to it that is the defining reality okay so men can love well through their sexuality and i think many men both appreciate the feminine the feminine how like the the brilliance in it the how compelling it is the desire to touch the feminine to have access to the feminine to be received by the feminine right, to feel free with the feminine. And when we as women have put ourselves down into a powerless and asymmetrical relationship, it can be very hard to receive the masculine energy because you feel unworthy of it, because you feel uncertain that you deserve it, you're not sure you want to be known. You have your own anxieties often, many of us do, about our sexuality and our desirability. Women, we are often much more critical of our bodies than men are. Men often see us much more as we actually are for how beautiful we actually are than how we've often been taught to see ourselves, which is very critically and so on. So it's easier sometimes to reject men and sexuality as inherently self-serving, selfish, hedonistic, natural man. And we get a lot of cultural support for that dismissiveness because as a culture, we have so much anxiety often about sexuality because we often link sexuality and evil and we, we blend, the, we, we confuse those two ideas and we interfere with our ability to distinguish between 
what is in fact evil and what is sexual, what is loving, what is good, what is exploitative or bad. A lot of, you know, I get questions all the time about like, is it okay to do X, Y, and Z? Is it okay to do? And for me, those are always like not valuable questions because it depends on what's actually being created or done in that moment. You know, some people are fixated on only missionary position is the righteous position. But think about how many evil things happen in missionary position, right? right? So missionary position certainly doesn't guarantee that what's happening is good, right? It doesn't matter where your mouth is. It doesn't matter what position your body's in. It matters what's in your heart. It matters what you're actually doing. Are you loving through your sexuality? Are you caring and being cared for? Or are you using Okay, and one can use through being sexual, one can use through refusing to be sexual. Right, I, I mean, just I know people who have married in order to secure a position in life, to secure financial um, stability, to get out of a bad family situation, but then never want to actually desire their spouse, don't want to actually choose or love this other person. And so they are, in fact, using through their non-sexuality, if that makes sense. And so, you know, evil doesn't just happen through sexuality. It's how we are in relationship to one another. Are we good to one another? Do we honor what it means to bring someone else into our lives and live up to that commitment to God, to our highest selves, and that commitment is about how we're going to live when we're with the other person. Now, marriage, um, unless you both have agreed to something different, okay, which maybe some couples have, but as long as most people are getting married under the assumption that this is going to be a sexual relationship, that we're bringing our sexuality to this relationship and nowhere else. Right, and that we are going to sh share our sexuality with one another and love each other through this very special and very exclusive bond, okay? That's what most people assume when they get married. Now that's different than what I've heard some people do when I'm working with them in coaching sessions is they'll say, well, Jennifer uh, or JFF, whatever said that marriage is a sexual contract. Therefore you have to give it to me. Okay. So I'm not saying, you know, people always still have their choices, but I think that sometimes people get married and then have anxiety about sex and intimacy and how much they want to actually show up. It's easier to show up in a sense when you're dating because there's a lot of uncertainty. You're trying to get that person to want you back. And when you get married, a lot of people are very surprised to find that the context of marriage, that sexuality feels very different because it's way more intimate than they can tolerate. So they maybe wanted the security of a marriage. They wanted the, the kind of um, auspices of, of legitimacy that it offers or the economic security, but they don't necessarily want, and, and this is true for men and women that I've worked with who are the lower desired people in the marriage, they don't necessarily want high contact with another person. They don't necessarily want to figure out how to be themselves and partner with another person. And so it becomes easy to make sexuality the problem rather than who we are as a couple that needs to be addressed. What's going on in me or between us that I don't like sex. So a very, now, let me just speak in the stereotypical way for a moment because I want to talk about how we've tended to think about men's sexuality is that, um, sorry, I have like 17 different thoughts. So I'm just trying to keep them all straight here. Just give me a second. Um, so I think because women have often been taught that femininity and desire or femininity and eroticism, femininity and sexuality are incongruous. They don't fit together. If you're going to be a righteous, good woman, it's almost childlike, okay? It's, it's needless and wantless that you put away those things, that you may accommodate your husband out of the goodness in your heart, out of your selflessness, but you're not supposed to be a woman who loves sex. I remember when I first started talking to women, they would say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I can't picture a righteous woman 
that would be into sex. I have no idea what that kind of person would be. And so, you know, we have been so socialized out of the idea that sexuality has anything to do with goodness that many, many people, many, many good women have sort of divorced themselves from this part of themselves. So then they get married and now they're supposed to show up with some part of themselves that they don't even know that they have pushed away. And now they're supposed to produce it in this kind of self-sacrificing, servicing way. Well, it's no shocker that women don't like it. And I think an easy target for men is to say, you know, I have needs and you owe me. But an easy target for women in that anxiety is to make sexuality hedonistic, to make it bad, to make it that you just want me for the sex. You just, you know, you're just, um, I thought I married a righteous guy. Okay, apparently I didn't. <laughs> okay, um, And so that can be, not to mention that we get a lot of cultural support for making men's sexuality suspect, uh, problematic, rather than how loving sexuality can be, how loving a man can be through his sexuality, the kind of spirituality that one can experience when she or he is allowed I'm trying to actually articulate this in the in the book I'm writing, and it's it's a little bit tricky to understand how do you explain this idea that there is a kind of freedom and also a tether to morality. It's not an absence of morality. It is tethered to love. It's not weighed down by morality, though. It's not moralistic. It's not rigid and fear-based, but it's anchored by love and integrity and investment. And then there is this paradoxical freedom that you get through really choosing and really bringing your best and your courage to each other. There becomes a kind of freedom that's at once deeply, I'm gonna use a word that I probably shouldn't use because it's so loaded in our culture, but it's deeply carnal, okay? Like of the body, deeply embodied, um, and also spiritual at the same time. And there is this, um, you know, that we can think sexuality and spirituality are these two different realities that they don't intertwine, that the good people tolerate sex at best or, you know, only do it when they have just the most loving feelings in their heart and that's the only way that they will get through this act. Um, and we see them as kind of opposite as opposed to in reality, they're two sides of the same coin that our sexuality is actually a pathway to our spirituality and to the best, to joy, to love, to freedom. Okay, now, now let's get it back down to earth here for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out for the joys of carnality. Yes. <laughs> right. And we often conflate this with evil. Right. So, so we talk about carnal and lust as equivalent to exploitative sex. And I 100 percent stand by that exploitative sexuality on any level is always evil. Even if you are hugging someone who does not want to be hugged and you will go ahead and keep doing it. That's way off. It's taking advantage. It's taking what's not being given. So, you know, and of course, the more intimate you do, intimately you do that, the more exploitative it is. So um, that part, 100%, exploitation is always bad. Now that's different than whether or not sex or deep desire or, you know, um, even kind of losing yourself in the pleasure of sexuality with your partner that can be very, very good. Yeah, someone says it's like a kite. It needs the moral string and then it soars. Exactly, exactly. And if you try to divorce it from morality, you run yourself into hell, like in the, this life. Because <laughs> you need morality, you need love. But if you don't allow it to happen and you can't have pleasure, you don't ever get to experience joy. I mean, people that are so fearfully, rigidly following the rules are anxious and never know what joy really is. They're hoping it's something that shows up in the next life. So uh, says, what if he can't show emotional intimacy, but there's connection and passion in the sex? Well, I guess I would wonder kind of what that means. That's kind of a division that I'm not always comfortable with where we say sexual intimacy versus emotional intimacy. But I think what you're saying, which is what a lot of people are trying to get at is, I don't feel like we can have the verbal connection. I don't feel like we can that he reflects back my feelings in the way that I would expect. Um, and 
you know, when I first started dating my husband, my husband's very quite introverted and I would say entirely long sentences to him and he would, you know, at most maybe say, hmm, that's, that's interesting <laughs> at most. <laughs> so that I remember in the beginning feeling like, and he could be absent-minded. He's like an absent-minded professor type. And I would, was insecure enough and didn't know him enough that I would take it personally. I would take it like, you don't know me. Do you care about me? Um, I would sort of be looking for these evidences through emotional connection, like the kinds of conversations I would have with girlfriends or another guy that I really liked. I could talk to him about anything. We talked about things all the time. We shared sort of a, a way of thinking. And so we could talk about things all the time, but I didn't feel any attraction for him. He was like a brother or like, you know, a good friend, but there was no sexual pull for me. And so it took me a few years actually to kind of do things that make me not feel insecure. And, um, okay, I think I'm back. Sorry about that. Um, so, okay, good. I think we're good. I broke the internet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let me see. What was I just saying? Um, yeah. So I was in the name of emotional intimacy, actually looking, <laughs> of course it stops here. Okay. Uh, in the name of emotional intimacy, I was, uh, looking for validation. I wanted him to make me feel like I was amazing and the best. And, um, and, and that was a neediness in me, but it also obscured that this person really did know me and really did care about me and expressed it not in verbal ways. I mean, sometimes, and actually more now than ever, now that you know, we're just, we know each other so well, but there, it, that, but he did express himself well through his physicality and just through his event in, uh, investment in me. He knew me well. I remember doing a, um, like a baby shower. It was like a couple's baby shower and somebody had all these, like, I don't know, 10 questions. What, what would Jennifer do in a given situation? And basically, uh, John won and he even got the answers more accurate than I did. Okay, so I, on one question, said what I thought would be a socially appropriate thing to do, but then John said what I would do, and I was like, actually, John is right. That is actually what I would do, is that. So it, it was for me, this idea of intimacy is how well you're known. It's very different than validation or a certain kind of validation. Now, just to legitimize that question, though, on another level, is I think a lot of, I promise I'll get to these questions in a minute, Clearly, we need to talk about men's sexuality more. But, um, um, sorry, give me a second. <laughs> My thoughts. So, it is also true that many people feel accurately that their spouse is not invested in them, doesn't know them, wants what they want, right? Wants to do all the things they do, come home and just have sex. And they don't necessarily care about and are invested in a partner. They want validation when they come home at the end of the day. They want the idea that I've been out working and you should just be so, uh, you know, um, admiring of me that you just want it, you just can't keep your hands off me. And that's kind of a fantasy that they want to have play out without really investing. Now, one more thing, and I promise I'm going to get to some specific questions here. It's easy to say you don't love me enough from the one down position and to keep looking to that other person to make you feel okay, kind of like what I was doing with John initially, as opposed to stepping up and holding your own more and both giving better and asking for better. That's the move. So it's like, look, I do want to have good sex, but it is not sexy for me when you never touch me except when you're in the mood, right? Or I do want to have good sex, but I don't feel like you take me seriously. And maybe I'm a part of not being taken seriously, but here's what is a problem for me. And you are speaking not to justify your stepping away from an intimate relationship, but to speak to what needs to happen um, 
to speak to what needs to happen in order to create a more intimate marriage, both emotionally and sexually, to use that framing. So it's, in short, not asking our partner to be like us, and not asking our partner to just validate our reality, and I'd say this to men and women, right? Um, and to be willing to know the other person enough to know how they think and operate, but to expect both of yourself and your partner that you're invested in a partnership, which is very different than how most of us have learned to think about what marriage is. A lot of us think of marriage um, so you say one up and one down a lot. I'd really like to understand that in painful details. Okay, I will say just a little bit about that. And then I think, honestly, we're probably gonna have to do men's sexuality again next time because I just don't think, I've got like 1,700 questions here. <laughs> and obviously we need to get to more of them than I'm gonna get to today. But let me just speak a little bit about one up and one down just to, just to make this point. We've kind of been taught, even though the language around it has softened, and this comes from the larger culture, from the way, you know, larger society has thought about it, but it's infiltrated our, our theology and I think uh, interferes. We tend to think of marriage not, we don't talk about marriage as intimacy. We talk about marriage as roles and we talk about marriage hierarchically. So you have God, men, women, children. And so women are good in part because they're impotent. You know, they have more power than than children do, but men have got more power and they're closer to God. And so women are just naturally good in part because they can't do, be too destructive. Uh, they're just too sweet and lovely, <laughs> as all you men know, uh, that we're always sweet and lovely. So, um, so there is this idea that marriage is about men taking care of women and you can engage in the tender intimacies of sex as long as it's polite and doesn't infringe on her anxiety and it's loving, but it's not really a marriage of equals and of differences and really working out meaningful capacity through um, understanding and expanding ourselves to accommodate those differences. So, um, so yes, you're right. The strengthening your relationship course really takes on this one up, one down dynamic, <clears throat> but it's also easy to take refuge in either position. I hear people say like, when is my wife gonna get to my level sexually, right? And it's a fantasy that I know how things should be. I hear women who do the same thing. Like, when is he gonna start reading the scriptures more and being the kind of you know good person he should be that I get and he doesn't get? And I don't mean to say that there aren't differences or differences in strengths or that sometimes people aren't stuck in certain ways, but there is a kind of um, way in which we will do hierarchy to not have to take ourselves on more and step towards the marriage. Okay. Um, okay, good. So let me uh, just go to some of these questions. I'm just going to do this one first because I kind of like this question. This person says, I often stew over my desires long before I share them with my wife, wondering if it's coming from a place of honesty or if I'm being selfish or seeking validation. What's a good litmus test for myself that can give me confidence to move forward more quickly? This can range from sexual desires to things I think are important as a family leader, like schedules, extracurricular activities for kids, kids getting phones, etc. Well, what I would say is, <clears throat> it sounds like you're kind of internally processing and you may be an internal processor and you're trying to kind of figure out what you think about things and there's nothing wrong with that, of, of trying to figure out what you, um, be just trying to sort it out in your own mind, which is fine. I'm more of an external processor. I'll start just talking to kind of figure out what I actually think about something. Um, however, there, if you're hiding what you think or you're keeping it inside because um, you want to know that it's right first, or you're afraid that your idea will get your wife upset those are two problematic reasons for keeping it inside because the way you start to know if your point of view is legitimate is you hold it up to the light of day and 
stand by it in a conversation. The way that people can pull off their ill-informed ideas is by masking them, hiding them, justifying them to themselves, finding somebody else out there who's a victim just like them and agrees with their limited point of view. And so the thing that keeps us blind is our desire to maintain validation as opposed to tolerating the invalidation and learning from it. It's not just, uh, you know, I have to suffer through my wife being upset with me for my wrong idea. That's not the virtue in invalidation. But what is my wife showing me or telling me about either who I am in what her, she doesn't like about my idea or who she is in what she doesn't like about my idea, right? So is somebody invalidating it because there's something there that I really haven't seen and haven't wanted to deal with that makes me undesirable, makes this what I'm suggesting the wrong idea that I need to see and my spouse keeps telling me, but I don't want to deal with it. I find a way to dismiss it. Or is it something about my spouse that, you know, they don't want to accommodate, they don't want to grow, they don't want to deal with what you're saying. And so they just flood invalidation into the system as a way to get you to back off so that they don't have to grow up. And in either case, being clear-eyed is going to help you the most to stand on solid ground. Even if it's um, something your spouse is doing to deal with his or her anxiety and uncertainty. Um, so I would say to this person asking the question to, to just go into those conversations with honesty, speaking honestly about what you think, but a willingness to stay in that honest conversation until the two of you can come to something you both feel good about, that you can see the wisdom in the alternate view. I mean, it's foolish of us to not want to have invalidating views, although I certainly do this, like I, you know, I don't like it, but invalidating information has information that you need and even if it helps you just feel more certain in your current view or more certain in what you already think, then at least it's clear that you have really tested your perspective and you're more clear about it. Oftentimes your spouse sees and understands things about you that you don't understand. They're more privy to who you are. And so the more you can learn from what others see, the stronger your internal compass gets, the clearer your mind gets, because the, know, the more you know your own mind, not only the more trustworthy you are, but the wiser you are and the more able you are to do good in the world, to make a difference. Um, okay, so I would, I would bring it into conversation and be open to understanding your spouse's point of view and also her view on your view and stay in the conversation. Okay, this person says, we hear a lot about maybe the sex just isn't very good as a reason for a spouse having lower desire. Yes, but what do you do when you're the higher desire partner and the sex isn't as good as you'd like? The frequency maybe has gotten better, but there isn't a lot of passion or novelty in the actual lovemaking. How do you stand up for something better without making your spouse feel that they're never enough? Well, so... Let me, I'm just trying to think how to answer this. You know, a lot, so there's a couple ways to think about it. Sometimes you're partnered with someone who doesn't want the exposure of stepping in more. And so they use um, the, your desire for sex or your willingness to kind of have non-intimate sex or non-passionate sex to just kind of offer the sex behaviorally, but not really bring heart to it. Now, as you've heard me talk about, you can't make somebody do that, but I think you can name it as that and stay clear about what it is you're saying. I don't feel like you show up. I feel like you accommodate me and but I don't feel like you want to really be here. 
And what does that have to do with me? And what does that have to do with you? Now, I don't know if somebody's here that would say what they think the spouse might say to that, but, um, but you know, a lot of times it's scary to show up in a marriage. It's scary to actually bring your heart, not just your body. It's scary to say, you matter to me and I'm going to let you affect me. Um, and, and I, yes, this, I'll never be enough thing. Um, it can be challenging to confront, especially if you've been a critical person. Okay. But it can also be a way to claim I'm a victim of your desire as a way to get away from, I don't want to really show up here. I'm too afraid to, um, yeah. So, so I think Darcy, you're saying what the answer might be. I'll never be good enough. Yeah. That what whatever I do will never be good enough. Now, my response to that might be, okay, I guess you have to think about who the husband is in this situation, but I'm not asking you to be enough for me. That's not the kind of sex I want. I'm not telling you to be a need fulfiller for me. That's so last year. <laughs> okay. uh, so I'm not asking you to be enough for me. That's the servicing model that I don't want anymore. I want us to choose each other, to be more wholehearted in this marriage. I love you. I want you. I want us to claim our lives. It's so brief. It's so short. I mean, my husband and I were just talking about, we're in our 50s and, and I don't know why. I, I think it's what's going on in Ukraine. It's, it's, my dad died a couple years ago, but I think about death a lot. And, um, and I was, we were talking about the other day how much love and desire is connected to death and the appreciation of the finiteness and the presence of the other person for me. And I think for many people is very connected to the passion and the desire and the valuing because you don't have the idea like this person's going to be around all the time and I can just kind of assume they're going to be here, you know, instead a kind of embracing and cherishing of your life and the other person and how there are no guarantees. There are none, right? Life is short and amazing and painful. All those things are true. It's, um, it's a remarkable experience, a soul stretching experience, if you let it be. But part of it is being awake to the fact that life is so much about impermanence and loss and to embrace and value this person who's lying next to you. Um, I, it's a courageous thing to do because it, I know Schnarch talked about this in one of his books is just it's to really let someone matter is to know you're going to be heartbroken at some point, or at least one of the two of you will be in my case, it's going to be me because my husband's eight years older than me. And so, but it is to let somebody matter enough that and be involved enough in your life that it will devastate you when they're gone. And that's a kind of courage to love at that level, to value at that level and to be aware of it. Um, even at the level, like, you know, I was exercising the other day and I was just like, oh, I don't want to be, I hate it. So, like, I just want this hour to be over. And instead just thinking like, like embrace this right now that I am able to do this, that I'm not, you know, confined to a wheelchair, that I'm not uh, too old, that this is too hard to do, that I can uh, claim this and value it. And it is a, it's a way of creating joy in your life. And so, so much what people are hedging in their marriages, they turn their marriages, and we, again, we have cultural support for this, into roles and focused on duty and production. And when you're in the thick of raising kids, that certainly is a major goal of family life and is a major focus, but it's an easy way to distract from creating an intimate marriage and a partnership. And so when you have a spouse that's hedging, okay, 
I think it's naming it for what it is uh, without going over and trying to go blind to it or trying to get them to do differently, but knowing that they actually have a choice and to operate within it intimately by intimacy that you are knowable about its impact on you, that you see it, that you're not going to move it into the frame of, um, of, of, you know, you're never enough. That's need fulfillment. That's, you know, as opposed to maybe I'm living too cowardly in this marriage and it's affecting you. And so that's um, just, you can't make your spouse choose you, but you can be clear about who you want to be, who you are, and the impact of who they are on you. Um, and that's all we get. I mean, I wish there was the secret sauce that could always get your spouse to self-confront because there's some other questions in here about spouses that keep pushing away from it. But the most you can offer is your most honest soul to that reality and your ability to make choices, which is cold comfort, but it's still really, that is what you have. And to not go into the indulgence of trying to manipulate and pressure or the indulgent position of, of um, you know, masking it and making it not be real. Okay, let me go to some of the pornography questions. Um, this person says, I hear a lot about pornography being an unhealthy coping mechanism for uncomfortable feelings and stress. Is there such thing as a healthy coping mechanism? Or are coping mechanisms unhealthy by definition? I realized I've done a lot of avoiding my feelings through porn and other distractions in the past. As I try to deal with these feelings rather than depending on those vices, I have no idea what it looks like to do it in a healthy way. Also, I hear the phrase self-soothe used as a, as a positive way to deal with emotional discomfort. Isn't that just another name for a coping mechanism? And if not, how are they different? What is a healthier way to respond to sexual rejection, invalidation, and other stresses? Okay, those are very good questions. And I do take up so much of this in the Art of Loving course for the men's sexuality course. I talk a lot about pornography, how to think about pornography, how to think about um, why it can be compelling for some. Um, um, so there is, let me, let me go to the unhealthy coping mechanism. I would say to be alive is to be anxious. We'll just start with that, okay? Because we are dealing with uncertainty all the time. And a lot of times we're looking for ways to handle our uncertainty. Uh, and we're often doing it in understandable ways. The more we can have some sense that if I do something or has an immediate effect, you know, that can kind of calm us in the moment and make us feel a sense that we have efficacy or power or control. Um, but of course, the more we, you know, some of that certainly makes sense. Some of that certainly feels um, good. But to live in, a, if you're going to talk about healthy coping patterns with the difficulties of life, is anything that equips you more to handle the realities of life, to handle the realities of love, to be strong enough to engage in the world on its terms, which are not easy terms. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of um, anxiety tolerance to live life well. And so a lot of us will handle our anxieties in ways that are maladaptive and by maladaptive or an unhealthy coping mechanism, it, which is different than self-soothing and I'll explain in a minute, is anything that draws us into, that makes our lives worse for doing it. Um, it's when we go to any s form of soothing that when we emerge from it, we feel worse. We feel our lives are more out of control. So if you feel anxiety and you drink when you're anxious or you smoke weed when you're anxious or something like that, and you come out and you now haven't done the things that you need to do, you're not able to live up to your responsibilities, you have undermined some of your relationships because you're not present enough, okay? If you're, if you're using those 
uh, to get away from life in a system, systematic way, you're going to, those are maladaptive. Now that can be done through porn, that can be done through food, that can be done through spending money, that can be done through being video games, um, distracted all the time on social media. Those are ways of coping that don't allow you to live up to your own capacity and to grow the muscles, intellectual, psychological, relational, that you need to live life well. And so when we let our fears run our lives, we pay a really big price for it, right? Our cowardice, which we all have some of, except for Zelensky, okay, uh, that, uh, that that costs us when we cave into our fears. Now, for pornography and specifically, a lot of men, in my view, have inherited a lot of anxieties about sex. They're often not as, I don't know how to say it, but like women can kind of claim more their anxieties about sex or their uncertainty about sex. I think men are more, they have to act like they're cool with sex or that they feel comfortable about it or that they like it a lot. And, and plenty of men like sexuality or they like the draw of sexuality, but intimacy and sexual intimacy is much harder, right? That is that to actually show up and be with another person can be much more humiliating, uh, terrifying. Um, you know, uh, this is a couple I'm writing about in the book right now, which is just this idea, you know, he, she was very, very rigid and anxious. And then when they got married, he was in the one-up caretaker position and would conform his behaviors to attend to her anxieties because he was a nice guy, a good guy. He's being the kind of, he needed to be needed. He needed the validation of being the strong one. And so her anxieties paradoxically ran the marriage because she was anxious a lot anxious about disobeying any rules, anxious about oral sex, anxious about, you know, anything that, you know, that was incongruent with church rules. And so he would conform because he wanted her validation. But in due time, he felt so controlled by her anxieties, even though he's complicit in it. She's not making him do these things, but she's certainly pressuring from the position of you're strong, I'm weak, don't do this to me. And so he liked sex, but he didn't like sex with his wife that much. Now, it's not that she's beautiful. It's not about her attractiveness. This was more about that being with her was to feel like he had to manage her feelings all the time in sex, make sure she was comfortable, make sure, you know, sometimes he'd initiate and she'd critique it because she was uncomfortable. So she'd handle it by critiquing the way he initiated. And so he felt like as the strong one, he had to manage her feelings in sex, manage his own feelings in sex, do it in a way that made her feel loved and kind of handling all this responsibility. And so porn became easier. It's, it's not that the porn is so great and the women are so beautiful and all that stuff. It wasn't that idea. It's that this was a place to kind of have some pleasure. And it was also a way to kind of enact his resentment, that he didn't want the exposure, the critique, the pressure. And so he'd go to the porn as a way to just, you know, eat the chocolate cake, have the pleasure, have it on your own terms, have it privately and feel a kind of resentment about all the pressures he was supposed to shoulder to justify the secrecy and the not being transparent with his wife. You know, and he came out of a system where his needs always should matter less, you know, in his own family. And so it was, it's easy then to feel like I'm not supposed to bring my thoughts and feelings I'm not supposed to do this to my wife. That's going to harm her. I'm not supposed to make her cry. And so it becomes an easy way. But then, of course, culturally, we double down on the men and the pornography. Like, you know, this just makes you a rotten, hedonistic, evil person. And 
I, listen, I want to reinforce, I do know that there are men, and some of you are married to them, that are exploitative, take advantage, uh, use their superiority to steal your choices, steal information, right, from you about who they are, manipulate pressure. Okay, so I'm not, uh, th there is not one person, there's not one type of person who looks at pornography. There's a whole range of people and what is going on in themselves and in the marriage that would define why this is a choice or why this is a draw. Um, but the more one understands that draw and understands what's happening, the more ability they have um, to handle it. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, so it's interesting, like women in pornography is kind of interesting because certainly there are women who absolutely look at pornography, look at it a lot, feel a lot of the guilt and shame and, you know, and don't get the focus actually. Um, but in some ways, I actually think that kind of makes it easier for women because I remember thinking as a kid, well, if a girl masturbates, it's not as bad as if a man, a boy masturbates. <laughs> like, I don't know, it was a self-serving interpretation. Or like, it's okay if, you know, the Sears catalog had all the bra section and the underwear section and stuff. And sometimes I would look at it, okay? And I would think, well, as a girl, I like, I can't even do that much harm. Just the guys can. <laughs> okay. So this is probably my self-serving interpretation of reality. But um, but, you know, it was also a way that women could kind of get a pass around pornography or around their sexuality because we're, we can't do much harm anyway. So, um, so yeah. And somebody asked earlier, is there a female equivalent of pornography? Well, of course, women can look at pornography, but I think uh, food and sex are highly related because they both are solved in moderation, right? how we, and by moderate, I don't mean boring. Okay, you can have amazing food and amazing sex, but the moderation of it is it's integrated with your integrity. It's integrated in a way that it blesses your life and makes it richer and makes your life better. But it's not in either extreme of, of indulgence at your own expense or repression at your own expense. In my view, repression and indulgence are both anti-spiritual positions. They are both in self-betraying positions. They undermine your peace of mind, they undermine your well-being, and they interfere with you being capable of joy and connection. Because to be capable of joy and connection, you have to live in a way that's at peace with oneself. And so finding a way to be at peace with oneself or anchored into one's morality around the pleasures it can be tricky because we're often dealing with anxieties and you know lots of people talk about they get anxious and they start stress eating they are they're trying to handle anxiety through the pleasures but then they don't come out of that feeling better they feel worse but it's an easy thing to do just as it is to do through sexuality and so um this ability to learn how to come back to this issue of of self-soothing self-regulating that self-regulating, when you're saying what's the difference between that and an unhealthy coping mechanism, is anything you can do to calm your anxiety enough to move into productive, uh, excuse me, to, into productive action, to be able to go and do the things that you need to do, to settle yourself enough to stay true to yourself, true to what you value, to the life you actually want to be living, the kind of person you want to be, right? that you are finding ways to, to live life on its terms, handle those anxieties, but not let them consume you, right? So I, my, my son has given me permission to talk about this a little bit, but he has often struggled with, he's a more anxious uh, kid, and so he sometimes would then go into avoidance or go into video games as a way to to get away from the anxious feelings. But then what would happen is the anxiety would get bigger. He'd feel smaller. It would be overwhelming him. And, you know, he's been learning little by little that if I want that anxiety to go down, I have to go towards the things that make me anxious because they get smaller and I get bigger. 
um, that I feel more able to handle my life. And it's not about 10 years from now that I've got to concern myself with. I need to concern myself with right here and now. Because when I self-betray and get away from the fear, I feel lesser. I feel less worse about myself. So, um, so there is this, you know, self-regulation. Um, Stoicism as a philosophy is very much trying to teach is, I love Stoic philosophy because I think it's very um, relevant to us today and is lasted through centuries because of the wisdom in it. But Stoicism is very much a philosophy of learning how to handle hard things and to create meanings that allow you to move towards difficult things. So somebody says in another question here, let me just quickly go to it. Let me see, we're almost out of time. Um, Give me a sec, where is it? What are ways that men who struggle with porn can transfer their sexuality and desire to their spouse? So what I think is it means more anxiety tolerance. And because if you're gonna go and deal with your intimate relationship, okay, well, there's gonna be a lot of invalidation there. There's gonna be disappointment there. There's going to be another human being who uh, isn't necessarily gonna handle himself or herself in loving and decent ways, but you're willing to go towards the things that are hard and difficult and pressure you to grow. And so it's not that, um, you know, visual imagery is probably always gonna be attractive. It's always gonna be appealing, just like candy or cake or whatever, it's always gonna have some appeal to it. But, um, oh, sorry. Okay, good. Thanks, Christy. I was going to also say one other thing. So there is, so you, it's not about that I need to not think that has any appeal, but more how do I need to engage in my life in a way that's going to create the life that I actually want? Sometimes we get into the framing idea so much that, you know, I'm not supposed to look at this. Even around food, I shouldn't eat that. Well, forget it. If I say that to myself, I'll eat it. You know, it's just like a rebellious and uh, immediate reaction as opposed to who do I want to be? What's the life I want to live and create? And is this going to get me closer or farther to that goal? And those hard conversations are hard, but I'm willing to go do that because I want something better between us. I'm willing to bring the invalidating honesty of having hard conversations to actually create a marriage, to engage in my life in a way that builds my self-respect. And that self-respect is critical. You know, a lot of times we don't realize the cost that betraying our own principles and ideas has on our sense of self and our it even compromises our desire to, to be intimate with someone because we don't feel worthy inside of ourselves. And that's a big deal because it really affects how you show up to your sexual relationship. So being true to yourself is a big deal in being capable of creating an intimate marriage. Okay, so we are at time. Uh, we will take up this topic again next time. We'll talk about it more because there's a lot of questions here that people were hoping to have answered. Um, I do want to say two things. Well, the art of the art of loving course takes on all these topics uh, much more in depth, and talk about pornography and self regulation and the, the, how you you know the women's course is a sexual and self development course, as is the men's course. It's about how do you develop a self that you respect, that you feel good about, that brings your strength to the marriage, to your partnership, that you really bring that masculine goodness to the marriage and how do you develop that more and get clearer about it inside of you. Uh, the other thing I was gonna say is we have a live Art of Loving course that's happening in September and I can't remember the dates, but I think it's, it's it starts Memorial Day and goes until Friday of that first week in September. Not Memorial Day, Labor Day, sorry. Labor Day to that first um, Friday morning in September. And I think it's about half sold out. So there are openings there if you wanna come and meet other cool guys and, um, and uh, take that course live. So, and I, I think charge of activities and there's gonna be lots of um, rock throwing and um, <laughs> 
axe throwing. So um, anyway, but that's also um, a good. Yeah, September 5th to the 9th. Good, everybody. Thank you. And I will see you all next month. Okay, thanks for being here. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Jennifer's work.